Support for this podcast comes from Frito-Lay in the 2023 Snack Bracket Championship. The Frito-Lay Snacker Challenge is underway, and fans are voting on their favorite snacks to crown champion. We're talking about primetime matchups between the best 64 snacks in the land. Will Ruffles Ridges reign supreme? Can Doritos defend their dynasty? Or will Smart Food use their smarts for a surprise upset? Only you can decide. Get in on all the action for a chance to win up to $1,000 or a year's worth of snacks. Let your snacks be heard. Just go to Frito-LaySnackIt.SBNation.com to vote and enter for a chance to win. No purchase necessary. Threepstakes ends April 3rd, 2023. Void where prohibited. Years worth of snacks awarded in the form of 52 coupons, each good for one bag of chips. See official rules at Frito-LaySnackIt.SBNation.com. Welcome to Royals Review Radio. I'm Max Reaper, the editor of Royals Review. Joining me tonight is, as usual, is Sean Newkirk. Sean, how are you doing tonight? I'm Max. Good. Ready to ready to uh, talk about this, talk about that. Good. Hey, well, also joining us today is a special guest, Joel Penfield, writes at Royals Farm Report. He also hosts the Royals Farm Report podcast, which you can find on the same feed as uh, Royals Review Radio. Joel, thanks so much for joining us tonight. Thank you, Max. I appreciate you having me on again. Cool. Well, uh, I wanted to bring both of you on the show to focus the episode mostly on the minor league, since that is the future of this franchise. But, uh, you know, I, there was a little bit of Royals news I wanted to discuss first, and it's a good thing we have Joel on since it came from Royals Farm Report. And you had a, an interesting story today from Alex Duvall, uh, who's written at our site and also writes at Royals Farm Report, that the Royals had a potential deal for Ian Kennedy. Uh, but, Joel, do you want to tell us a little bit about that deal and exactly kind of what happened yeah, so uh, from sources that uh, Alex is pretty well connected with, um, it was reported to him that the Royals had a deal in place with the Braves all ready to go. Uh, Ian Kennedy was going to head to Atlanta at the trade deadline, and the Royals were going to get back local guy Joey Wentz, who is one of the top pitching prospects in baseball and has had a fantastic year in AA now uh, for the Detroit Tigers. But the issue is the uh, David Glass, is, it seemed to be that uh, – he didn't want to eat the money on Ian Kennedy's deal. We don't know how much it was, but he didn't want to have to eat any of the $22 million remaining on Ian Kennedy's contract, and the deal fell through, and now Joey Wentz uh, got traded in the Shane Green deal to Detroit. So it's pretty frustrating, in my opinion, that this deal didn't happen. I feel like right now Ian Kennedy's value has never been higher, and this is pretty much the going rate for relievers nowadays and to get a top prospect back, I feel like this is a deal the Royals should have pulled the trigger on, uh, as I'm sure most Royals fans have seen that the reaction has been pretty unanimous and how fans feel about this deal, uh, both from the uh, front office perspective and just fans. But it's it's a little frustrating for me. Uh, what do you guys think about this one? And a little, I mean a lot. <laughs> so, you know, we touched upon this a little bit last time we were talking about uh, the Royals, you know, how much they're willing to eat on a potential Ian Kennedy deal. And, and, you know, the fact that he wasn't traded made us think that they were kind of holding firm on that report that Ken Rosenthal had that said they weren't willing to, to eat any money. And of course now Alex has, has his, his sources telling him that the that is, that was in fact the case of the deadline. The Royals weren't uh, willing to trade Kennedy. And, and it's really interesting that I think someone else mentioned this on Twitter. It's like David Glass kind of made his money as a shrewd person who understood sunk costs who understood business principles in you know with walmart and so to not 
kind of get that trading Ian Kennedy and being willing to absorb most of that contract would be a good way to kind of build assets for the future. So it does kind of confound me. I don't understand what the rationale would be to not be willing to pay most of the money on a deal. What do you? What was kind of your take of the of that report? Yeah, I mean, my sources said that they wanted to pay me the money, but I turned it down. <laughs> uh, no, uh, yeah, I mean, like the break even was pretty. I think I had it as about half, um, half the value, and which was like, like he was owed like twenty million. Yeah, so I mean, let's just call it eleven million. Um, and so, like, if they were able to eat that, basically, that's break even on surplus value. And then Wentz is worth like four or five million um, in surplus value. So, I mean, call it fifteen million. Let's just say is what the Royals would have to pay to basically offset with the Braves the cost of Wentz. And I mean, that's doable. I mean, it's either, and this is what baffled me about the whole thing is because like, it's either you're going to pay for all the money. Or you're going to pay for some of it, and so if you're just not—I mean, if it's not as if like nobody's willing to take on all of this contract, so it was either hey, you could pay all 24 million of it, or you can have the Braves pay eight million, and then you pay you know the other uh, the other nine million of it. But it's like no, they've decided to just pay the full 24 million of it or whatever it is. So I don't know. That's the kind of frustrating thing too is even if you're if we want to call them cheap and money conscious then the uncheap thing would be to actually uh, have someone else pay for part of the contract, right? Uh, so I don't know. It doesn't make sense that the, why he wasn't moved. Um, you know, I wrote at length about this at the time, and it's, it's, it's this exact same thing. I mean, it's it's not surprising. And we we see we saw them stick around with players. I mean, they've still got Billy Hamilton on this roster. And we're going to talk about Brett Phillips a little bit later, but it's the exact same principle. Just get rid of Billy Hamilton and go call up Brett Phillips. I think probably my, my guess of what they're thinking is that every day that, that passes, he's owed less money, right? So if they decide to trade him this off season or next summer, that's a lot less money that's owed on his deal, and that's a much more digestible contract that perhaps another team would be willing to take on. Uh, and so maybe they're banking on getting a team to pay more of the freight, of course, Every day that also passes, another day they have to pay, make a paycheck to Ian Kennedy. Yeah, exactly. So you know, I I don't know if that that kind of logic really holds that much water, and yeah, it is pretty frustrating. I mean, we know the Braves were pretty desperate for bullpen help at the deadline. They acquired three pitchers at the deadline, uh, in in Chris Martin of the Rangers, Shane Green, who was ultimately traded for Wentz, and Mark Melanson of the Giants, who they ended up paying twenty million dollars to uh to acquire, and they paid all of his contract. And maybe the Royals were just holding firm because they knew the Braves were willing to take that much money on for Melanson, and maybe we're hoping that kind of get got that kind of deal for Kennedy. I don't know, but it it is pretty frustrating, Joel. And uh, I don't know. It just it's just seems like a really missed opportunity. Um, but I guess we shouldn't be too surprised at this point, just because it does seem to be kind of their mo at this point to to kind of shortchange. And look, I don't think you know Dayton Moore. I think it's pretty clear Dayton Moore would probably want to move him. But it, this is ownership, right? This has got to be all on ownership, right? I think it could be some of both. I know Day, like Dayton Moore was at, had an extremely high asking price for what Merrifield wanting two or three major league ready guys for him. And so I think just the asking price on it seemed to be every Royals, the possible guy the Royals could trade was decently high. So it doesn't surprise me that this happened to be the case. But the hard part of it is the the. Braves were so desperate; they were willing to trade one of their best pitching prospects. They even traded Colby Allard for um, for Chris Martin. So they were willing to offload assets to get guys for their bullpen to shore up for the second half of the season. 
but the, and the Royals let him go, and now Joey Wentz goes to Detroit, and he's a Kansas City guy. You know, for the next six or seven years, when Joey Wentz gets to the major leagues, he's going to haunt the Royals, and this is a decision that's going to loom large, especially if Wentz ends up panning out. This is a missed opportunity for the Royals moving forward. And think about you add him into the the group of prospects and a group of pitching arms that the Royals have right now in their organization with Singer and Coar and Lynch and now Bubich and the list goes on. You add him in there and it bodes even better for the future, but this is a missed opportunity. Yeah, and you hope that they can at least salvage Kennedy, his value at least, and, and maybe he's he's good next year and they get a pretty good prospect for him as well next year. But if he gets hurt or aggresses, yeah, that's going to be a really, really big missed opportunity at the deadline. So, yeah, really good report there. Check that out at Royals Farm Report. Um, like I said, I did want to talk mostly uh, in this episode about the prospects and how this, the kind of the state of the minor league system. Minor league seasons are kind of winding down here in the next couple of weeks here. And so we have a pretty good idea of where the, how the players did this season. Sean, you came out with your top 20 Royals prospect list this week. So I just want to go over that a little bit and get Joel's input on these prospects as well. As well. And you can check out the full list, of course, at our site at Royals Review. But just want to touch upon some highlights for the number one spot. You had left-handed pitcher Daniel Lynch. Uh, Lynch had a 3.09 ERA this year and 11 starts for Wilmington before he had a bout of arm soreness, which sidelined him for about a month. He's He was rehabbing now in, uh, in, in, in Burlington, a rookie ball, looked pretty good, made his first start for Wilmington this week, uh, rejoining the club, I guess first start since he came back to rejoin the club. Now, there's the Royals' farm system, I think there's been a lot of disagreement about who's the top prospect in the system. I think... Uh, many would say Bobby Witt, uh, their 2019 first-round pick. Some people will say their last year's draft pick, Brady Singer. Even Jackson Coar has really become a breakout star. But, but Sean, you had uh, Lynch number one. Keith Law also had Lynch number one before the year. What kind of separated him from the pack to have you put him at the top of your list? I think you could. I think you could look at. I think you could make the argument that Coar has a higher. Yeah, if you put both of their 90th percentiles in place, Coar has a higher 90th percentile as far as the um, the realistic ceiling on that. Uh, but I think Lynch has a higher chance of reaching his his 90th percentile. A little bit of that is because Lynch has um, there isn't a pitch where you're you're basically saying, and, and not that the 100 percent success of both either Singer or Coar rest on the development of their third pitch, um, because they could still have be a good capacity pitcher but i think with lynch you at least don't have a question of he needs to develop something it's really just kind of uh i mean you can make the case for 50s to 55s across the board on um all of his stuff his fastball the curveball and the changeup um are all you know fairly good as is um and he also kind of throws a slider curveball so those four pitches and the command is pretty good so it's not as if there's some big question marks he's got to fill um, you know, when you compare him to Coar, Coar still, I think he needs to figure out a curveball. Um, his changeup's obviously really good. The fastball is actually pretty good as well. Um, the command is maybe not as good as Lynch, but it's 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 good enough. Um, and then I just think that the curveball needs work. So that's that's the big thing is the development of the curveball is what's going to uh, push Coar to be whatever he's going to end up being. And then same thing with Singer. Um, his is the development of the changeup. If you look at if you've watched some Singer starts. It's not actually just the changeup, but there's also the platoon issues that go alongside the changeup. Because if you look at his curveball against left-handed batters, and left-handed batters have just destroyed him this year, it just runs right into them. His curveball slider, it's kind of got um, some some side break on it. But 
yeah, it just runs right into left-handed batters this year, and and that's been that's going to be a big big issue given his arm slot and the lack of changeup. So that's why of the three kind of big three, um, you could say uh, I'd have Singer at what sixth. Um, he's the last of the three, or sorry, he's fifth. Um, he's the last of the three because of that. And um, while I think yeah, Coar has possibly the highest upside of the three, I think Lynch most probable to reach his. Should we be concerned at all about the the arm soreness? I mean, he has kind of bounced back. In rehab, and will and you know, he obviously returned to Wilmington this week. But um, and I know wasn't I was kind of vague on what exactly hurt. It just sounds like kind of general soreness. But is that something that we should be concerned about going forward? Doesn't seem to be an issue. Um, and you're right. I mean, I I had in my notes arm injury. I don't think we ever really heard a word on what it was. But no, it doesn't seem to be an issue. And I mean, he's been back fine. He didn't have a, really an injury history that much in college. Um, so now I, I don't think there's anything to be worried about and, um, we'll see. I mean, if a week from now he gets shut down again, then yeah, it, it's a big issue. But as of now, um, it doesn't seem like it's anything and he's back in Wilmington, uh, tonight pitching tonight. So uh, Joel, like I said, there, there seems to be like not a real strong consensus about who's necessarily the number one prospect in the system, which could be a good thing. I mean, that kind of says that the Royals have a decent amount of depth at the front, but you could also say like, you know, it's like the NFL when you have two quarterbacks, you have no quarterback, uh, how do you feel about the top of the system uh, and who is kind of your number one uh, prospect right now? So I have Jackson Coar as my number one prospect in the system. I was able to watch him pitch last Saturday and I work for 2080 baseball as a scout, but really I'm also a Royals fan. So I have a little bit of bias here and I wanted to just go as a fan, watch the game. And I sat there with my wife and watched the game and his stuff was lights out. It was one of his best starts of the season, eight shutout innings and six strikeouts against the Tulsa Drillers. I was really interested to see how his curveball looked. I know Sean mentioned that and how it's, you know, it's it's his third pitch. It's not a great one. But what I liked about him is that he was confident enough to at least throw it now and throw it effectively for strikes and not just make it a show-me pitch. He was using it when he was ahead in the count to try and get a swing and miss out of the zone. He was even able to throw it in the zone pretty effectively too. His fastball change up he tunnels it extremely well it's mid to upper 90s fastball with the change up 10 to 12 mile an hour difference it's it's gross it really is it's a it's an easy 60 65 pitch if it continues to develop i think it's an easy 70 pitch uh, alex duval and i are pretty high on the the jackson co train we're, we're leading the charge there if you want to hop on uh, but we think he's like a chris paddock light it's that same type of fastball change up with a decent curveball He's an easy two to three in the inner rotation. I think he's going to be a fantastic major league pitcher. I think Daniel Lynch is going to be the same way. If he, I think I want to see a full season from him. Obviously, the arm soreness did not help uh, his uh, standing in the rankings, in my opinion. But I think he's still better than Brady Singer. Um, I want to see how he comes back, at least in the last month of the season. He pitched well in the playoffs last year for Lexington. I imagine they waited a little bit longer on him so that he could be healthy for the playoff run with Wilmington being the first half champions in their division of the Carolina League. So I would imagine we see him quite a bit there toward now that we're getting into the final weeks of the season, heading into the playoffs. And then Brady Singer, I think Brady Singer is a surefire major league pitcher. Now to what capacity he is a major league pitcher remains to be seen. I look at him more as a back into the rotation, consistent, solid major league pitcher without being a superstar blow you away type. It's going to be a little bit of an adjustment for him at each level. We've seen that a few times this year in Wilmington. His first couple starts were rough and then he was nails. And then we've seen the same thing in Northwest Arkansas. First couple starts were really, really bad, but now he seems to figure it out. And I think we'll see the same thing as he progresses. It's going to be a little bit of a struggle for him his first three to four starts. But I think he's going to end up being a consistent, solid starter for the Royals. So they have really three guys that are going to end up in the major league rotation here within two years, if not sooner. 
Yeah, Singer, I think, is a guy that you, I mean, just the his mentality, his tenacity, I think, because you're going to have some ad- adversity, but I think his, his ability, ability to overcome that, I think it's, you know, I'm not, I'm not big on the intangibles, but I think that is something you like to see out of a player uh, because a lot of these guys were the man in college, and you come up to the pros, and, and you're going to get your brains beaten every once in a while, and it's how you kind of bounce back from that that uh, really shows how well you're going to do as a pro. Um, but I'm I'm all aboard the Jackson Car train. I'm I'm hopping on there with you. Um, he looks really impressive to me. I think he's got uh, great swing in this stuff. Um, he's a little on the thin side. Not that I you know I, I like some of the slider build pitchers. Um, I don't know if you know I don't think he's had a, a track record of injury, but I guess that's something to keep an eye on. Lynch I I, lo- I like a lot too. I think just the the injury doesn't really concern me, but just that he missed time, and that's time that he wasn't developing as a pitcher. Which, that's the only reason I would probably slot him just a little bit behind Coar, but but I think I think all those guys are kind of squeezed up together, and I think the future for those three looks pretty bright, uh, at least in my eyes. Um, another guy we didn't really mention, but I think a lot of people would say is probably one of the best prospects in the system is Bobby Witt, uh, Jr., the number two overall pick in June's draft. Um, but he hasn't really set the world on fire so far in his professional career. Now it's only 26 games. Uh, and you know, I think Sean and I, you mentioned, we talked about this a little bit last time, but you know, the Arizona summer league is a little weird too, because you're facing 18 year olds, uh, 17 year olds sometimes. And, but you're also facing like 28 year old guys rehabbing. Uh, but Witt's hitting 261 with, without much power, 313 slug, 312 on base percentage. Joel, should we be concerned at all with this slow start or, you know, with the guys that are just out of high school, is it just kind of a you know kind of like a stock that you just kind of set it and forget it and check in and you know on a yearly basis? See, I'm not super concerned yet. I'm not really concerned right now. It's rookie ball. He's still trying to adjust to playing professional baseball. It's a lot longer of a season, obviously, because he played his whole high school year and then just went right into to playing professional baseball. It's a long year trying to adjust to that. I I'm not taking too much stock in it. What does concern me is the lack of power at all. He has. 36 hits so or uh 30 hits so far in uh in the arizona league and 26 of those are singles uh no home runs two doubles two triples that is a little bit of a concern as well as the fact he's only walked nine times he's not walking at a very high clip he's also not striking out a ton either so at least we have that so he's putting the bat on the ball but there's no pop to it at all but i'm hoping that maybe in the offseason this is an adjustment for him I won't be concerned until we see something like this next season in Lexington. If we see he's hitting around 260, but there's not a lot of power there and he's not walking, then at that point I start to raise the red flag just a little bit. But for right now, I'm I'm trying to lay off the sky is falling on Bobby Wood Jr. Yeah, the the play discipline, I I, I expected some struggles with that. Just you see that a lot out of kind of toolsy high school kids. Um, as they learn to adjust to a professional, you know, uh, strike zone, the power. Yeah, I'm I'm a little uh, surprised that he hasn't hit for at least a little bit of power, especially the dry air of Arizona. And you know, cause, because we were told he had done well in a lot of wood bat tournaments, and and uh, you know, he, he was kind of at least familiar with hitting with wood bats. And you thought that with his kind of pop, he'd be able to uh, get a few out of the diamond. But you know, it's 26 games, so I, you know, I'm of the opinion that uh, yeah, I'll check in with him a year from now and see where he is. But, but definitely something to be, I think, a little concerned about. And, Sean, I think you and I mentioned last week that it only looks – I think it looks worse than that so many guys around him in the draft have done – have gotten off to just fantastic starts 
it just kind of highlights uh, his kind of medi- mediocrity so far. Yeah, it's just bad in comparison, but um, there's nothing you could do right now. And it, the two guys, and as I noted in my list, the two dudes that had age issues um, are both just doing poorly. Well, Brett Beatty's not doing that bad. It's like a 110 WRC+. Plus, but the Age issues meaning like they're old for their draft. Yeah, yeah. They, the, their biggest flag was their age. Um, they were both 19 on draft day. Um, and so both of them have gotten off the slower starts than you'd like. Um, but, I mean... I think you mentioned Adley Rushman is not doing that well either. And I don't, uh, and so, I mean, it's not like, it's not like people are going to be like, Oh, what a bad pick Adley Rushman. Um, so there's still time yet. I want to move back to the pitching a little bit. Um, a couple of guys that aren't part of the big three, but are having fantastic years. Nonetheless, Jonathan Bolin and Chris Bubich, uh, two of the lesser known pitchers from last year's draft. Bolin tossed a no hitter earlier this year. And the second round pick has a 3.27 ERA across low and high A ball this year with 133 strikeouts and just 16 walks in 124 innings. Bubich, a left-hander, selected 40th overall last year, has a 2.41 ERA with a whopping 163 strikeouts this year in just 123 innings. When they were drafted, I think the, the conventional wisdom was like, oh yeah, maybe they become fifth starters, maybe a middle reliever. But as they kind of have this kind of success, Joel, should we begin to raise the expectations a little bit? So I had I felt like Chris Bubich was going to be a solid pitcher this year. I did not expect him to break out in the way that he did. Obviously, getting a futures game nod, striking out as many guys as he has. Uh, I never looked at him as a huge strikeout pitcher, but this is why scouting and uh, looking at minor league players can be hard sometimes. And sometimes guys surprise you in a big way, and that's what he's been able to do this year. He's been dominant this year. I think John Boland's another guy that has broken out in a big way. I didn't really know a ton about him even last year when he was pitching in in Burlington. I didn't know a ton, but. I, all I heard from guys that played with him in, in Lexington is that he's a stud and he's a really, really good pitcher. And he's a guy that as we continue to move forward, he's got to keep an eye on. I don't know if they'll ever, they'll continue the success. I don't know if they necessarily have the track that a guy like Daniel Lynch, Jackson Coart, Brady Singer does. But if the, if we can see this next season, I think we're looking at two guys that could legitimately make the major league rotation, or if they're a bullpen, they're an absolutely dominant guy. I think the the best thing about both of them is their ability to control the strike zone and be effective in the zone, and not quite frankly, just not walk people. But they're not. It's not like they're throwing terrible, just throwing strikes just for the sake of throwing strikes. They're just flat out not walking people. I believe uh, uh, Jonathan Boland's walk percent or walk percentage this year is two point nine percent which I believe is second in the Carolina League, if not first. And then Chris Bubich is 7.1, but that's still, in comparison to the amount of strikeouts he has, is very, very small potatoes. So these are two guys to keep an eye on for next year, for sure. But these are two guys that have broken out in a big way in 2019. What's really interesting to me is, like, breakouts. Like, when you see... Because, you know, obviously everyone has a different career path. We've seen Hunter Dozier breakout this year, you know, batting-wise. And, and Sean... We sometimes see these guys, they're drafted late, you know, late in the draft. Uh, they're not really considered much. A guy that comes to my mind is Dallas Keuchel. Like, he wasn't really that well thought of uh, out of Univers- University of Arkansas. Actually struggled uh, in the big leagues his first couple of years, uh, but but eventually figured it out and became a Cy Young winner. Um, and certainly we've seen other pitchers take career paths like that. Um, Bowling and Bubich, I mean, they weren't taken late in the draft. They're both, you know, uh, first and second round picks. So I guess they do have some pedigree, but what would 
I guess what would have to happen for them to kind of take that step, that step up to become like a top 100 pitcher? Because they put up the numbers, but they're still not quite getting the acclaim from scouts. Is it a matter of they, they just don't have quite the stuff yet, or um, or maybe the, the the numbers are a little deceiving? What, what's kind of your take on Bolin Bubich? Yeah, I mean the numbers look good. Um, the only thing, the only thing to you know, the the main consideration of the numbers is that the list of guys, college guys who have dominated, you know, high A. Um, so I guess put it this way: if you were to put if you were to put Bubich up against nine hitters that were basically MJ Melendez, Nick Prado, and Suli Matias, like how good? How do you think Bubich would do? I mean, you'd figure he'd do pretty dang well. Um, and so that's that's the big issue with double the double A numbers. Um, now you obviously want pitchers to do well. You don't want them to have bad numbers, and I think anybody obviously would take good numbers over bad. Um, but you kind of expect guys to dominate college guys, especially from power conference like Stanford, um, to dominate uh, these pit, to dominate uh, effectively some teenagers or um, college guys who maybe draft like Andrew Vaughn is in high A this year. So uh, you've the numbers are tough to take in and of themselves, but you obviously want them to be pretty good. Uh, those two are guys where I, I guess you could put them akin to kind of Kyle Isbell in the sense that they're basically just going to have to do well at every single level to make people believe. Um, because if you don't have the crazy raw stuff, um, you know, if you're not a 17 year old July two signee who throws 97 and has an awesome curveball, um, or you're not like a top five pick, it's tough to get, you know, people to, to read a lot into low A numbers and high A numbers. And so um, I think that, like I said with Kyle Isbell, it's going to be kind of where they have to do it at every single level. And then maybe once they dominate double A, um, or if they do well, obviously, in triple A, then people really start to buy in. I mean, people didn't even want to buy in. And as we're talking about Chris Paddock, Chris Paddock just became um, effectively a top 100 prospect last year, really. And like his number, his double A numbers, um, or even his high A and low A, and he was a 20 year old in a ball um he didn't pitch that much but because uh, he had his, he had his tommy john but i mean he had crazy numbers in a ball uh, even as a 20 year old and even rookie ball had crazy numbers and you know he still had that awesome change up through most of that time and so it, prospect status it's tough to get people to buy the numbers right away and so i think both of them uh bolin and Bubik, need to kind of continue to do this and then i think they can really gain steam um to, to start getting on the list yeah, Paddock was so well thought of as a prospect. He was dealt for forty-year-old, right. uh, two months of forty-year-old reliever Fernando Rodney. So, yeah, man, yeah. that's that seems like a crazy trade now. Yeah. Um, yeah. So you mentioned Kyle Isbell, which we were asked about, um, and it's been a rough year for Isbell. He was a guy I was pretty high on this year. Thought he reminded me a bit of Jason Kipnis or maybe even David DeJesus. Uh But he only hit. He's only hitting one eighty-eight this year. Uh, missed a lot of time after he he was hit in the face with a baseball. Then he suffered a hamstring injury. Joel, how do you kind of how do you evaluate a player like that? That you know, it's obvious this is just kind of a lost season for him. Uh, but at the same time, he's he's another year older. He's you know he came out of college, so he wasn't all that young to begin with, uh, and he's kind of lost a whole season of development. How how do you kind of rank Isbell in the system right now, and what's what's kind of your assessment of his 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 future? Yeah, I think this is just a lost season. I was really high on Kyle Isbell, just like you were. I had him as a top five, top ten guy in the in the system. I believe I had him seventh or eighth, and we have him at number seven in our midseason rankings at Royals Farm. Uh, obviously, it's just it's tough to battle two injuries at the same time. He gets hit in the hand, and actually they removed his handmate bone from I believe it was his 
whichever whichever hand you got hit in, uh, they removed the handmade bone, so that's a little bit of an adjustment to not have a bone in your hand that you've had for 22, 23 years and still come back and then play baseball and then deal with a hamstring injury too, which hampers his speed. But yeah, he's hitting a buck 60. I think his way to runs created plus is somewhere in the thirties since he's come back. So it's been tough sledding and the Carolina league is not necessarily conducive to good offensive performance sometimes. So there's a lot to take in here. I, I'm not, uh, you know, writing him off whatsoever. I think we could see something pretty similar to what we saw last year, uh, next year when he's fully healthy. I bet if we got a full season out of Kyle Isbell, I think we will be looking at a guy that's knocking on the door of top 100 and a top five guidance system. Talking about some other outfielders, Sean, you ranked uh, Michael Gigliotti number four on your list this year. Uh, I think it's much higher than a lot of other people had him. Uh, he missed all of, or nearly all of last year with an ACL injury. Came back this year to hit 285 with a 369 on base percentage, 374 slug. Although most of that came in low A ball where he's a 23 year old. Um, how do you kind of reconcile him being, you know, kind of so old at such a low level? And how do you think, what do you think his progression is at this point? Yeah. I mean, the injury didn't help him last year. Um, and he's hit well in Lexington this year. And, um, right now he's in Wilmington he's had roughly 20 games to not hit that well. Um, but that's a BABIP issue. I mean, you can make the comparison to Melendez or Matias um, or Prado, but they aren't getting BABIP to death. They're just striking out 40% of the time. Um, Gigliotti's still playing excellent defense. Um, I think I said in my preseason list that he made one of the most credible plays I've seen this year, um, tracking down a ball in Lexington. And he still continues to be an excellent defender, great base runner. Um, On-base percentage has never been an issue for him in his career. Uh, he makes a lot of good quality contact. I'd like for him to maybe have a little bit more lift in his swing and, you know, uh, focus on using his speed and kind of getting the balls into the outfield. I think it could be a really good double and triple asset with, you know, above average defender, kind of in maybe the David DeJesus mold in that sense with a little bit less power. Um, but he's a guy that, you know, when you're going to mix probability of not necessarily probability of reaching the majors, but probability of having a successful role, role um, and then upside. I think you could see him as, you know, a two-win player or so. And he's, um, I, next year, I would assume, if he'll start in Wilmington again, uh, but there's a chance he could be put right to double A. Um, he's hit every single level, and, you know, he's just kind of run into a little 20-game blip here in Wilmington. Like I said, it's, it's effectively just a BABIP issue for him, so it's nothing I'm concerned about. Um, you know, if he opens up in Lex- Wilmington next year and in June he's still hitting 203, then yeah, okay, uh, we have an issue. But I'm not that worried about it uh, at the moment. I was a little surprised he did spend most of the year in Lexington, uh, you know, with his age. But, um, you know, he was coming back from a leg injury, so a knee, pretty serious knee injury. So, um, yeah, I, I'll defer to their judgment on how to handle players think, coming off injury. And I think we're all, I think I can collectively, all of us can be, so tired of Wilmington. Uh, just <laughs> yes, the numbers, please. the numbers for hitters, the numbers for pitchers. It's just an awful environment. And I think I left in the comments today. They've been there. The Royals have been there other than two years. They've been there since '93, one of the longest ones. And meanwhile, every other team has basically left the Carolina League in some capacity. So, well, I think uh, I've read that the, the Wilmington franchise is, I guess, really well run, and the Royals have always had a good relationship with them. Mm-hmm. Uh, but yeah, I wonder if there is a point where. You say, you know, Frawley Stadium and that, that area is just too difficult yeah. to develop hitters. That's probably a good segue to talk about some of the guys we've handed around. The Wilmington hitters, Joel, MJ Melendez, Nick Prado, Sully Matias, just horrendous seasons. Um, Matias, he's going to miss the entire second half with a hand injury. 
Prado and Melendez. Melendez has started to come around a little bit, um, but but really just kind of disappointing seasons out of both of them. And of course, we know it's tough to hit there, but I think more concerning is the strikeout rates. Uh, we know they have the tools, and and look, they had some, they showed some numbers last year, especially I think Melendez and, and Matias uh, more so. They really showed some good power, but the, but the results haven't been there this year. I guess one, how do you still feel about them as prospects, and two. What can the Royals do about this Wilmington problem? Can they can they really evaluate hitters and pitchers when they have such an extreme park effect like that? So to answer your first question about MJ Melendez and Nick Prado, I'm still very high on MJ Melendez. I had him number one at the preseason. Obviously, that has changed considering the performance of this season. But I still feel like as a prospect, he's going to do just fine. He's a catcher. The offensive bar for catchers is so low, especially when you play elite-level defense like he does, being able to throw runners out. Um, I'm the back can lag a little bit in his development. As long as he continues to play that level of defense, he's going to be a major league player. If he can figure out how to cut down some of those holes in his swing, I think he'll be just fine. I want to see what he does next year. I would imagine that he goes to Northwest Arkansas next year. And if that's the case, I wonder how he does in a better hitters environment environment. If that makes any difference, same for a guy like Nick Prado. That's the hard part about Wilmington for me is because it's such a brutal hitters environment, especially early in the season when it's still cold and the wind's blowing in from the ocean. It's just awful for hitters anyways. But that jump from high A to double A is the biggest of the minors. So you're taking guys that are struggling in an offensive environment, trying to move them to a better offensive environment. That's the biggest jump in the minors, and you could see more struggles and confidence just completely go away. So it's a tough dynamic that the Royals are in moving from the Carolina League to the Texas League. It's it's a tough situation, but I kind of got off track there. But Nick Prado is a guy that I felt all right with going coming into the season. I think I had him in the top ten because of the way he finished the season in Lexington, and then it was brutal for the first three months there in Wilmington. He seems to have figured it out a little bit. He homered tonight, Wednesday night. Figured got his ninth of the year. If you can cut down on the strikeouts, maybe we start to see it. But I. Just with the way that he struggles to start seasons in his first two pro seasons, there's a little bit of a pattern there. I can't imagine it's going to be any different next year, even moving to a better hitter's environment there in Northwest Arkansas. Yeah, with Prado, I feel like it's it's for him, it's a major, it's a big pitch recognition issue or play discipline issue, like where he's just struggling to figure out how they call strikes at the major league level, or at least how, how pitches come in and, 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 and how to react to that. Um, and Sean, I think you and I mentioned a little bit about how at Royals Review today about, you know, should the Royals just, and none of these guys deserve a promotion, but you kind of want to promote them just to get them the hell out of Wilmington. But Joel brings up a good point. I mean, that, that is, you know, we commonly hear that, that making that jump from high A to double A is a huge jump, and that could just as much hurt their development than, than staying in Wilmington. So I don't know what, you left um, Prado off your top 20 list completely. Um, you know, what, what do the Royals do with these guys at this point? How do they get them back on track? Yeah, I mean, like, this isn't a fair comparison, and you knew I was going to bring up Chase Velo, but yeah, I mean, it's the same thing with Chase Velo. Like, he was so awful in Wilmington. I mean, um, is it really do any good just to keep throwing him back in Wilmington? Uh, so, I don't know. I mean, on merit, they don't deserve to be moved to Northwest Arkansas, and, you know, if there's room for him, great. And, you know, there's not exactly a whole bunch of guys lining up the block Melendez, who of the three, of Matias, Prado, and Melendez, you know, those are the three that have the most potential still. Um, 
that's the way I obviously would rank them and did rank them. Uh, so I think Melendez, you could move up. I think Melendez is just going to be who he is. Um, I said if he could be Mike Zunino, that'd be great. Um, obviously, that's a very high outcome for him at this point because uh, I think Zunino put up a couple, th- put up a three or four win season um, at his peak. So I mean that'd be great. But otherwise, I mean we know the the development path for catchers is not only incredibly windy, but it's incredibly long too. So. Um, yeah, it's great to have the Ron Acunas that are up at 20, but that's very, very rare uh, for catchers. And I don't even think, sorry, give me one second. Austin Hedges, uh, I wanted to see when he made his debut. He debuted at age 22. Um, kind of same issue. He he wasn't great in double A. Uh, he, he was better than Melendez has been, but he didn't destroy um, A ball as a 19 year old. And then, you know, even then he got promoted to double A, wasn't very good, wasn't really that good in a, high A either as a 20 year old. Um, definitely was not good in double A in 2014. He didn't hit. So it's kind of that same thing. And, and he's had a two and a half and then two win season. So, I mean, he's had a successful career so far, um, even though it took a while to kind of uh, get him there. And of course, he had a giant swing change, which also helps. Uh, but that's the kind of thing is, you know, the path for catchers is is very, very windy, even for the really good prep catchers. And there's been so many prep catchers that get injured along the way or just don't pan out. I mean, Alex Jackson with the Braves was whatever or with the Mariners at the time. I think he was the number three overall pick. And now he's with the Braves. Now people are like, well, he's hitting good in triple A. And so we'll see. So that's kind of the thing is um, Melendez. You can give some link to Matias. Probably goes back to Wilmington because of his hand injury, um, just to kind of figure it out and restart from there. And then uh, Prado, I, yeah, like you said, I left off the list. I I don't know. I just don't think he's a prospect anymore necessarily, at least not in the top 20. Um, he's, he's an okay defender at first. Hasn't hit for power, striking out uh, at, at a very, very high rate. And I don't know. I just I'm not enamored by it at all, enough to even rank him in the top 20. Let's turn to a couple outfielders that we could be seeing in Kansas City before too long. We'll start with Khalil Lee. Uh, Lee was, I think, you know, kind of fringy, top 100 prospect around baseball. He was on some list. Baseball Prospectus had him as a number number 61 prospect before the year. Had a solid season in AA, and I wouldn't say great, but he had 261 with a 366 on base, uh, 372 slug, seven home runs, whopping 44 steals, which is pretty nice, among the leaders in minor league all of minor league baseball. Uh, Joel... How do you deal with Khalil Lee going forward? Because we know that AAA is using the new ball this year, so will we be able to really evaluate him much if he gets moved up to Omaha? Um, and we also know the Royals don't typically like to have their top prospects play in AAA much. Um, what do you kind of see uh, his 2020 season looking like? Is he going to have a chance to make this team to start the year? Or is he kind of you know maybe a midseason call-up? Or what's, what's, what's the future for Khalil Lee? I, if I had to put money on it, I would guess he's a, a mid-season 2020 guy. I bet they give him a little bit of time in AAA. I think he's a guy that they, I think they want to see him hit for some power. So I think maybe just seeing the ball fly out of the yard with whatever the heck the, the Super Bowl they're using in AAA. I don't even know if it's you can consider it a baseball. But I, I've watched him take batting practice a couple times this season, going to games early and going to the Texas League All-Star game. His batting practice is special. The ball flies off of his bat. You know, line drives to the gap. Pole power is extremely good. 
he's a guy that I think will take full advantage of that ball and he'll find a way to just get the ball out of the yard. I think if he's a gap to gap guy, I don't think we're ever going to see 17, 20 home runs like we saw from him in Lexington back in 2017. But if he's a 15 to 18 home run guy with a bunch of steals and a bunch of doubles, I think he provides enough value and he's a great glove in the outfield. And I think he's utilized. I think utilizing his speed the way he has this year with 44 steals, he actually had his 45th tonight in for Northwest Arkansas. So, I think he's a guy we'll see next season in Kansas City. Now, when is a matter of whenever the Royals decide to actually uh, bring him up, or if they sign another terrible uh, free agent for three and a half million? I don't know if we'll ever see him. So, who knows? Sean, what, what's uh, your kind of comp for Clearly? To me, he's always kind of reminded me a little bit of Dexter Fowler, but um, actually seems like he maybe doesn't have quite as much power as Fowler, but yeah. more speed. Um, but what, is he someone we should be penciling into the Royals outfield here in a year or two? I'll tell you what, he, I had issues with his ability to stay in center just because he figured he was going to fill out a little bit more, and he's obviously run very well this year. Um, he, he, I'm going to say that, okay, so he made two really, really good plays in center field the other night that saved, I think, four runs in total um, and kept, it was either Coar Singer, kept their line pretty clean. Um, and I was like, wow, okay, that's good development. Uh, and then tonight, of course, he's in right field and he completely booted um, a single. So, and, and how he's been taken out of the game since. Uh, so, <laughs> I'm not helping either way. But yeah, I mean, I think he's a guy that you could play in center field and get away with it. Um, but he's probably best fit for right. I still don't know about what's going to happen with the hit tool. Um, if you watch him, he doesn't lift the ball that much and he's got some power in there, but. It's like a guy who I'm picturing draw Dyson the way he the way he's got that kind of line drive swing that just when he gets it he's got the good bat speed and it just goes right over the outfield or right over the infielder's head. So that's what I see a little bit with Lee when he swings the bat. Um, obviously Dyson's not the comp I'm looking for, but kind of the the way he hits the ball and the swing path are, are somewhat similar. And he's he's actually got a little bit better uh, bat to ball skills than I, I thought he would have. Now that I've seen more of him in Double A, because in Wilmington you never really get a chance to see uh, these guys. So um, I'm I'm a little more optimistic maybe than when I was, uh, but. Obviously, I did move him down in my list. Um, I think that's just because some guys rose up a bit of him, uh, a bit more than he is. But I don't know. I, I, like I said, I comped him to a Keon Broxton or Michael A. Taylor, Brandon Nimmo type. Um, I think it's more the Broxton Taylor than the Nimmo because uh, Nimmo's uh, had a really, really good uh, seasons. Uh, but uh, yeah, I mean, a guy that's you know maybe going to walk eight, nine percent of the time, strike out probably twenty five percent of the time. 120-ish ISO, play some good right field, um, maybe some center field as well. So uh, a useful player, but still kind of maybe a bottom-of-the-order bat. Well, those kind of walk rates, I mean, that's, we haven't seen that too much in Kansas City. So yeah, you're right. We might hit that top of the order. I take that back. I take that back. You're right. He plays for the Royals. So make <laughs> yeah. it a 4% walk rate. They'll figure something out by the <laughs> yeah, time he gets they'll, they'll get it out of him. Yeah. Uh, another, speaking of another outfielder who draws some good uh, fair walk totals, uh, is, is another guy that maybe we could see before Lee is Brett Phillips. Uh, and he has just been on an t- absolute tear for Omaha lately. Lately, he's all summer, really. Uh, since June 1st, he's hitting 279 with a 406 on base percentage, 616 slug. He has 13 home runs in 57 games, his last 57 games, 10 triples, and 40 walks. Uh, Joel, look, we know AAA numbers could probably be taken with a grain of salt, but. What the heck is Brett Phillips doing in AAA? Why isn't he with the, the, the big league club at this point? So, what? Why, yeah, it's a, you know. it's a great question. 
It really is. And he he mentioned uh, on Twitter, I believe Brett Phillips did, back in about the middle of July, he said that uh, he found some legitimate holes in his swing and made some changes to his complete approach and the way that he goes about it. And we can see the dividends paying off now. The reason he's not in Kansas City right now is because Billy Hamilton is still in the Major League roster for some unknown reason. Um, I At the earliest, we'll see Brett Phillips whenever the Omaha season ends. Um, or at the latest, at the earliest, I, we can hope can tomorrow roll around and we see Brett Phillips in Kansas City. I sure as heck hope so because if nothing else, he's a fun guy to root for. He's a guy that's easy to root for. Um, and the success he's having this year, I think we'll actually see him have success at the major league level and not strike out 40% of the time like he did last year in Kansas City. Yeah, he's, I'm just surprised they've kept him down so long. because he, he seems like their kind of player, too, like a high-energy guy who plays great defense, uh, can run a little bit. Uh, it just It's kind of baffled me that he's stayed down as long as he has. Hopefully we'll see him before too long, but, man, it just seems like they are kind of missing it. Every day that passes is another day you don't get to see what he could do at the major league level, and the clock's ticking on him. I mean, he's not a young guy anymore. Hopefully he'll, he'll get a shot before too long. Um, Alec Lewis had a nice article out this week at The Athletic about the Rule 5 draft. I know it's kind of early to start thinking about that, but the rule, you know, who has to be protected for the Rule 5 draft in December really impacts who gets called up in September. Uh, the Royals currently have three spots open on the 40-man roster, uh, so they have some flexibility. There are some guys they could probably get rid of without losing too much sleep over it. Um, but let us I wanted to go over some of the names that Lewis brought up that um, that could be protected and get your opinion get both your opinions on on whether or not these guys should be protected. So we'll start with speedster Nick Heath. He's made it up to AAA this year, was promoted. Great speed in the system, um, but he's on a little bit on the older side. The hit tool isn't great. Uh, Joel, what do you think? Nick Heath, is he going to get protected or not? I think he will get protected. We have it on pretty good authority at Royals Farm that he will get protected because if he doesn't, then he's probably going to go first overall in the Rule 5 draft. Like He is that good. Teams are that high on his speed and ability in the outfield. And quite frankly, he's a Royals-type player, like I mentioned. He runs the bases like a bat out of hell. He's a decent hitter. He's a solid fielder. Like He's a guy that the Royals like having, and I would imagine that they protect him. Uh, and if they don't, I will be absolutely floored. I, I think he's a guy that ends up in Kansas City at some point. So I would be shocked if they uh, if they let him roll, walk in the Rule 5. You agree with that, Sean? I mean, I think they might protect him. I, okay, so I think that they are likely to add him to the 40-man. I do disagree, though, that if he were to not be protected and were to be Rule 5 eligible, that he would go early. I don't think that he would. Um the strikeout rates are really, really bad, even though it's paired with a decent walk rate, and obviously the speed is great. But I still think that teams can find that really anywhere in their minor leagues. And you remember, obviously, any guys that they take, they have to keep on the roster, the 25-man roster, um, for whatever it's X amount of time. So I don't know if teams are willing are willing to 100% tie up a 25-man spot for Nick Heath. That's my only trouble with that. Um, but I do think he gets protected. Well, there was there was a good point that uh, uh, Joel and, and Alex mentioned on uh, their podcast last week is that next year there's, it looks likely that Major League Baseball is going to expand rosters to 26. Yeah, true. Yeah. And um, so I don't you know I don't know if that opens up a spot for a guy like Heath. I do know that teams generally do like a guy that is like 70 grade in something, even if it's speed. And so Heath seems like the kind of guy that traditionally could have been taken now teams are moving away from speed as an asset i think they are looking more for for power headers and more for relievers these yeah. days but uh but he does strike me at the very least as a guy the Royals will be 
worried about losing. So I do see him getting protected as well. Yeah. About, well, yeah, yeah go ahead. And, and the one thing that's working against Nick Keith is that he plays in the one org we know that would take him if he was <laughs> rule five out. <laughs> right. Uh, how about Foster Griffin? He's a former first-round pick. Hasn't really pitched well if, if you look at his ERA, but then you also have to consider that the Pacific Coast League is is just terrible for pitchers. He's actually 10th in the league in ERA despite a 5.27 ERA. Uh, Joel, do you think Foster Griffin is, is going to get protected? I, If you had asked me right now, I don't think so. Now, like I said, you have to take whatever we see in the Pacific Coast League with a major grain of salt because the average ERA, for those who don't know, uh, in the Pacific Coast League is 5.55. So the fact that he's top five or top 10 in the league and he has a – ERA north of five. That's tell you how brutal it is, especially when you throw 88 to 90 miles an hour like he does. I just I don't see him as a major league pitcher. I the thing is I think the Royals probably won't protect him, but I don't know if another team would take him either. So I feel like we still see him in the system next year, even if he's not on the 40 man. How about you, Sean? Um, I think he would. No, I don't think they protect him. I actually I think there would be a chance that he gets picked up. Um, he's filled out a little bit more than I had really noticed. Um, I haven't watched him pitch very much this year in AAA, um, just because I've seen him so much, you know, especially since he was a first-round pick and, you know, all the years he spent in the minors with the Royals um, since he was taken in 2014. So um, I, I do think that the Royals don't protect him, but I do think he might be a guy that the Royals might actually lose uh, potentially because he could be a bullpen guy. I mean, he's got actually some good secondaries. The velocity's not that bad. He's just been kind of hit hit around, and I don't think he's ever been tried in the full bullpen role. Um, he's always been obviously put out as a starter because he doesn't have – other than the bad performance, he doesn't have any red flags. Like, okay, this guy's probably a reliever, which then again, maybe the bad performance is, is a red flag. Um, but, I mean, he's basically always been a starter. I think maybe he could do a little better in the bullpen. And, um, yeah, I mean, like, and as we conventionally know, it's easier to hide guys. You know, it, it's easier to hide guys in the bullpen than the starting lineup. He was unprotected last year and didn't get selected. Now he's, you know, triple A now and kind of getting his brains beat in, but so is everyone. So, I, you know, left-handed pitchers – are kind of coveted a little bit, but um, yeah, I don't, I don't know if he's going to really entice the team well enough. And I think if the Royals are worried about losing him, it's only because they're so thin in pitching uh, at the higher level. So I would guess he gets, does not get protected, but uh, we'll see. How about uh, Carlos Hernandez? I was kind of surprised that he's already rule five eligible, um, but he's, he's been kind of hurt, but sometimes those are guys that get taken uh, because teams are expecting or wanting to see if they can kind of buy on a guy low. Uh Joe, what do you think? Carlos Hernandez, does he get protected? I think he gets I think he's an interesting guy that the Royals could protect just because I think they still believe in his ceiling. I mean, he's touching a hundred right now in Burlington or in Lexington, wherever he's pitching right now. I don't know off the top of my head, and that's great radio, I'm sure. But I think he's a guy that the Royals still believe can eat, be an effective reliever or an effective starter at the major league level. I think the Royals do end up protecting him, but it could be close. I feel like if he does if the Royals don't protect him, I think a team takes him purely because they know how electric the fastball is. What do you think, Sean? I think he's, he seems like the kind of guy that um, would get you know, taken. Has, has high potential. Yeah, and might get yeah. taken because of that potential. Yeah, I, I think they protect him because of that. Um, I mean, he's a guy that you could – the Royals would leave unprotected. The Yankees or maybe the Astros would go pick him up um, or the Rangers or the Padres would go pick him up because, you know, like, like Joel said, he throws near 100. Um, go pick him up and then, you know, obviously move him to the bullpen – 
figure out because he's actually got pretty dang good spin rates, um, particularly on his fastballs, one of the higher spin fastballs in the entire it's, it's sorry, I think it is the highest one in the entire org. Um, and so, I mean, yeah, th- that that's just calling for a team that can tease out a little extra velocity, tease out the little more secondary stuff that has a track record to that, like the Yankees. Um, and then, you know, he ends up being a really good reliever um, out of nowhere necessarily. So, yeah, I think they protect him. And if they don't, I think they might be making a mistake if they don't protect him. And he's a guy that, like, I would like to have on the 40-man and then, you know, see if you can get him as a reliever. And, I mean, is he really going to be worse than trying out another Brad Boxberger or something like that necessarily? So, uh, yeah, I, I think he gets added and and he would be taken. Yeah, I agree with that. Um, what about Sully Matias? Royals have an interesting predicament with him. I mean, he's coming off a terrible season in, in A-ball and, you know, he had the hand injury, but he did hit, what, 32 home runs last year and teams are looking for power. Uh, is Sully Matias the kind of guy that the Royals should be worried about losing, Joel? I think they could be worried about losing him just because teams know the raw power potential and even the game power potential that he has. But I don't foresee the Royals putting him on the 40 man just because I think I just I truly do not know if he's a major league player because the strikeouts are so bad. And the guys like every once in a while, you find a guy that strikes out a ton that hits a ton of home runs that turns on turns into Joey Gallo. But it's very hard to find those those types of guys that fit such a niche even in baseball where guys don't care about strikeouts anymore it's still he's still so raw i just don't know if i don't know if they do it i think he still ends up back in the organization because i don't think a team would put him on a 25-man roster um we'll see but i i I don't foresee the royals putting him on the 40-man but i don't know if he gets taken what do you think john yeah he no they wouldn't enter the 40-man um even if he, the big issue as well is that he was injured this year. So I don't right. think any team, I don't think New York would take him, uh, you, you know, not knowing, basically missing almost an entire season. Um, and yeah, I mean, if he were in the majors right now, I'm, I'm trying to pull up Clay Davenport's translation. Um, but if you're in the majors right now, he would strike out 60% of the time. Uh, he's, he'd be projected in... 575 at bats, 185 strike. Yeah, that number's not right. Um, so There's no chance. It's more than that. Yeah, yeah. He he would strike out. He would strike out a lot. Uh, 60% of the time, 50% of the time. I mean, he it would be a total wasted spot. So uh, I would almost rather have Chris Owens than him. I'm it, just it, it seems like there's always like a, a couple Ugh. a couple guys available who have a great power, but like struck out 30% of the time in a ball. And they never get selected. Yeah. Uh, just, the only guy that I could think of that's worked out and they're playing the Royals tonight is Marcelo Zuna. He had awful strikeout rates in the minors. Then he figured it out. Um, but obviously that's the that's the outlier, not the example. Yeah. Uh, and I feel like the, uh, I don't think he'll get selected, but I wouldn't be surprised if the Royals added him just because they were so worried about losing a guy with, with like, you know, that high grade of, of power that they just didn't want to chance it at all. I think they tend to be a little on the conservative side when it comes to protecting guys like that. So it wouldn't surprise me if they if they keep him. Um, a guy I know that, Sean, you've been high on, Gabriel Cancel. I believe he's Rule 5 eligible as well. What what are the odds he gets protected? Yeah, I don't know. I feel the same thing. I feel like the Astros would take him. And they not they wouldn't turn on to Jose Altuve, but they'd take him and then they'd figure something out with him. Uh, but uh, I don't think he gets. I, I think he gets added. Um, I like him just kind of for he is who he is. I think there's a chance he could kind of be maybe not if not an everyday kind of guy on a 25 or 26 man roster um, to fill out some sort of role. I don't think he's a star or a really above average player, but I think I think he could be 
uh, the Chester Cuthbert kind of role. Uh, he's a better defender, I think, than Cuthbert, and obviously a better runner than Cuthbert. Um, but um, now, I'm not sure that, that that's a tough one. I'm not sure if they protect him. If they didn't protect him, I don't think he gets taken. But I would I would give a 25 percent chance he gets taken, maybe a 20 percent chance. And Joel, it seems like when infield, it's the guys that are versatile that can play all around the infield. Where Cancel seems a little limited, maybe to second, maybe third. Is he a guy you think it's uh, that warrants being protected for the Rule Five? Um, I like Gabriel Cancel. I think he's a guy that, like I mentioned with Khalil Lee, I think if he plays in AAA next season, if he doesn't get selected in the Rule Five, if the Royals decide not protect him, not to protect him, I think he's a guy that takes full advantage of the juice ball and starts to hit for a little, even more home runs. I think he has 16 or 17 this season. He's closing in on 30 doubles. I think the bat is le- legitimate enough that he can make a major league roster, and I think he's a guy that benefits from it and them adding another roster spot to a 26 man roster. He's a guy that I think is a bat first bench. I think he, he can play third, he can play second. He played a little bit of first for a little while. I don't think they'd ever put him at short unless it's in a pinch, but I think he's a guy the Royals protect. I think because they like the versatility in the bat, I think the Royals could protect him, but I'm not going to put a lot of money on it. I, I wouldn't bank on the Royals doing it, but it also wouldn't surprise me if they decided to protect him and put him on the 40 man. Hey, I will say that, Cancel did play some shorts. He's played shortstop for Double A this year, and he's got a beautiful 875 fielding percentage. I mean, that's <laughs> that's incredible at shortstop. That's that's uh, uh, whatever his day, a Jordan Simmons level. But yeah, he's played first, second, shortstop, and third in his career. Hasn't played third yet this year, but he's played shortstop in Double A. Obviously, not been good, but um, yeah, like like Joel said, he could play in a pinch. So don't hate. I only good things. <laughs> Wasn't trying to hate, just just laying things out as I see them. I know, I get. It. Then there's a guy that I've I'm kind of a fan of. I think you guys at Royals Farm Report are as well. Grant Gavin, he's a local kid, uh, out of St. Pius, I believe. Uh, no, uh, Park. Yeah, I think uh, St. Pius in Parkville. Yeah, St. Pius. Yep, and the University of Central Missouri. He has always kind of been an underrated guy, but he just puts up numbers at every level. He's a right-handed reliever, so. Those aren't necessarily coveted, but he does have a very good strikeout rate this year. 60 Ks and 44 innings. Walk rate's a little high. He has given up some unearned runs that may make his ERA a little deceiving. But Grant Gavin, he's only 23, I think just turned 24. Uh, is he worth protecting, Joel? I think so. I, it would not surprise me if you know they may you – know, I, I have a theory that I don't know if the Royals you – know, it's something that the San Diego Padres have done, but I don't want to see Jackson Coar – or Brady Singer, or any of these guys pitching in the PCL, it's such a joke. I just don't know if it's worth it, quite frankly. And I think Grant Gavin could be a guy that maybe we see bump to the 40-man this year. I would love to see it. I don't think they will. But I think he's a guy that the Royals do protect because I think they really like his fastball. He spins the living crap out of it. He's got a decent off-speed. He's a good two-pitch pitcher, even three-pitch, if you want to call it change-up. I think he's a guy that can really be an effective major league reliever. And I would imagine that he would be a guy that would be coveted in the Rule 5. Because they know how bad their bullpen has been, I think he's a guy that in the you know next season, I think could be an effective guy for the Royals in their in their bullpen, and I think that uh, they do end up protecting him. And Sean, it seems like they've got these three open roster spots right now, and he's in Double A. It seems like maybe it's worth bringing him up here pretty soon and seeing what he can do against major league pitchers in the next six weeks. And if he gets totally lit up, and you just like you know seeing he's just not really worth protecting, maybe that hurts his value a little bit and, and allows you to maybe uh, designate him for assignment or, or, or leave him off the roster. Is, is Grant Gavin a guy that's that's worth uh, protecting right now? Um, I mean, 
in the hierarchy of protection, no. But is he a guy? I totally agree with you in the sense that, yeah, it would be cool to call him up, just give him a shot. And I mean, worst case is, I mean, he's not that he's been an orc for that long, but you know, he's this will be now his what fourth year in the orc. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, I think I think the question for the Royals comes down to could since he's a local guy, could he sell enough tickets to his family that would offset the cost? for two days on the roster <laughs> i think that's what they're worried about uh, but no uh yeah i think it, I, th- I think you're right i think it's a kind of guy i mean he's been in double a now back to back he's been in high a twice in a row uh so um yeah i would love to call him up to see what it is i mean you're not expecting anything out of him to begin with he's actually got good strikeout rates in, in the minors maybe you could figure something out um with the walk rates but uh, i don't see any issue with yeah calling him up seeing what you have and then you know worst case is his probability of being a good major leaguer was pretty low anyways so you just take it from five percent to zero percent you know it's not like you're really spoiling him or anything like that and like i said local guy so it's just fun to give him a shot yeah and frankly they they've got the 40-man roster that roster space. room you know it's yeah. like if they've it's not like they're they're really uh you know a lot of names bumping him from the list so he yeah, may be worth a shot uh here's some other names i'll just kind of throw them out there if you guys want to talk about them catcher sebastian rivero infielder eric mejia outfielder blake perkins Pitcher Junior Marte, pitcher Gerson Garabito, and infielder Jason Guzman. Any of those names strike you as anyone that's you'd even have to make maybe a decision on? I mean, Perkins, I think, has a decent on-base percentage. Garabito yeah, seems kind of fringy-ish. Yeah, but he's a guy they would like because the defense. Who's that? Uh, Perkins. Perkins? Yeah. And I think maybe Junior Marte, just because he throws hard, and that's another guy that would be coveted pretty easily. Marte's a guy I've liked. He's been eligible for the draft, I think, the last two seasons and has gone unprotected. I've been a little surprised because he does – his numbers aren't, like, eye-popping, but they're pretty good, and he does have the velocity, and he seems like kind of the rubber-armed reliever who you can throw in any situation and he'd at least give you a shot. So I'm kind of surprised he's never been selected, but the fact that he hasn't been selected I think probably means he's not going to be – uh, protected this year. Uh, what about Sebastian Rivero? I know, I think the Royals, I think there was an article in spring training about how much the Royals really liked his glove. I don't really know much about him beyond that. I know he hasn't hit a whole lot. Um, is it possible a team wants to take him for his glove? The Royals already have four catchers on their 40 man roster right now with Salvi, Gallagher, Nick Dini, and uh, Mabers Valoria. Uh, I, don't, I can't imagine they would add a fifth, but is Rivero a guy that would get interest from other clubs? I'd say maybe for his defense, but I wouldn't count on it. I don't think they protect him, but I think he ends up back in the system. Yeah. Uh, I, I don't see the Royals putting a fifth catcher on their 40-man. Yeah. Well, I just want to kind of end with uh, maybe like an under-the-radar top 20 guy who maybe you have identified as someone you're kind of keeping an eye on. I think, you know, we know some of the top names, but I'm always kind of interested in the guys that I have that are way off my radar that maybe a year from now will be on someone's top 20 list. So, uh Joel, since you're our guest, you can go first. Like, is, who's a, who's a guy that maybe uh, more you know mo- most casual fans haven't quite heard of that is a name that they should at least consider for the future. So the guy I really like, he is in our top twenty over at Royals Farm. We have number seventeen, Brewer Hicklin. He's a little bit older. He's in high A right now. Um, bad played a only played twenty two games there in twenty eighteen. Predominantly was down in Lexington. Was a major part of that uh, championship team there in South Atlantic League. But he's had a pretty solid year in uh, in Wilmington. I think he would be saw another solid guy to bring up in Double A. One twenty nine weighted runs created plus got an OPS right around 
stolen 36 bases plays a good outfield he just seems again just kind of like a royals guy just an all-around good dude can play you know can hit a little bit but can run play solid defense i think he's got to keep an eye on going into 2020 but he's a guy that i think needed a promotion this year but i think the outfield was kind of log jam there in in double a that we haven't seen it yet but i think he's a guy that we could see have a really solid year in northwest arkansas in 2020 yeah, I was surprised he didn't get promoted this year at some point. Uh, and I guess the logjam does explain it. But he's good. he seems like a really good power-speed combo kind of guy. He really tore it up in Lexington last year. His numbers at Wilmington, I mean, don't, I mean aren't eye-popping. But then you consider, oh, it's Wilmington. Uh, a 781 OPS in Wilmington is, is pretty darn impressive, actually. So, uh, And he, you know, he does provide that speed they really like. So uh, I think, yeah, that's a good pick. I think uh, it's someone to keep an eye on uh, for. Sean, who do you have as an under-the-radar guy? Um. I like Michael Massey um, for for finer guys. Um, he was, and I'll say Burr Hicklin's a good choice. I had him torn on mine. I think that I think that he would have been my choice if not. And but uh, you know I won't double up. I'll go with Massey. Um, he was he was in consideration. Um, I started with thirty, then whittled it down to twenty. So he he made he made like the second cut, but was gone by the time I got into like twenty three, twenty four guys. Um, but Massey, college hitter, and you know I have an affinity for college hitters. Um, obviously, and he was at a power conference with uh, at Illinois. Um, guy that can play some shortstop a bit, um, but probably is more second base. Can definitely play third base. There's some power there. Some good contact skills, um, approach at the plate. Um, but he had a back injury at Illinois kind of kept him out for, I think it was almost all of the year, but he was, he was out for a while. So that's what made him fall to round four day two. Um, so he's a guy that I think if the back injury doesn't be an issue, cause there's some good raw power there that he could, uh, he could be a guy that sticks up the middle, hits for power, has some good contact. Um, but you know, he's got to stay on the field. So that's my, that's my guy. The guy I thought who I thought you were going to mention was uh, Daryl Collins, who yeah, I had one. never heard of until I guess a couple months ago. And I know the Royals just signed him, I guess, back in January. Seventeen-year-old kid from the Netherlands, uh, which is kind of surprising. But he's hitting three fifty-eight in the Arizona Summer League with four forty on-base percentage. Doesn't have a single home run yet. Uh, do you know anything about him other than the fact that he's just hitting the snot out of the ball in Arizona? I don't personally. Um, yeah. um, I, I had no idea who he was until a couple weeks ago, which, again, great radio when you work for a site that covers the minor leagues. <laughs> no, you would I mean, think like, I would know who the hell like he was. Came out of no- At first I thought he, he was like a come out of name. nowhere. Yeah. I mean, it, what he's doing right now is pretty eye-popping. If he can start to hit some balls over the fence, I think he's going to turn into something really interesting. And he's only 17, so that's pretty fascinating too. Yeah, I had Collins on my list. Uh, what did I have him, like 13th or 14th? Yeah, I mean, really weird background. Um, still obviously pretty dang young. And, I mean, uh, like anybody that's in rookie ball as a teenager, who the heck knows what's going to happen. But um, he's pretty well built. If you've seen video of him, he's, he's filled out. And I think the video that I've seen is like a year old, so he's probably filled out even more than that. Um, there's some bat-to-ball skills, which actually look pretty good. Um I know a guy that does the Trackman data uh, in Arizona. Um, it's not Trackman. It's uh, Rapsido. Um, he really likes Collins for whatever reason. Uh, he won't share the data with me, obviously, because you know teams pay for it. Uh, but uh, there's some power. There's some feel to hit. He's a bigger size guy. He's a right field only kind of guy. Um, but there's enough intrigue there that... Um, I would put him ahead of, and obviously I did, I put him ahead of a guy like Prado just because of, um, 
exactly that it's there's some intrigue enough that you could be like okay this is something let's let's see what happens because he's a big strong boy I imagine if you're signed as a 17-year-old out of the Netherlands, you must be like a physical specimen because yeah. they're not exactly churning out baseball players. So uh, interesting. Yeah. I'm, yeah, see, I, I almost thought he was a fictional story at first, but uh, I'll be really interested to see if he turns into anything. Uh, well, Joel, thanks so much for being on. Why don't you just quickly tell people about Royals Farm Report, anything you guys are working on uh, for the future? So follow us at Royals Farm on Twitter, RoyalsFarmReport.com. Alex and I are actually going to have two podcasts out this week. We're talking about a bunch of hitters. We have neglected a bunch of episodes this week, this year. We have been extremely busy getting everything uh, together for the site and personal lives and all that stuff. But look forward to two episodes. You'll be able to find them on the Royals Review list. Look for Royals Farm Report podcast on Spotify and iTunes, and you'll be able to find it there. And you can also follow Joel on Twitter at JT Penfield. That's JT Pen, P-E-N, and Field, F-I-E-L-D. You can also listen to Royals Farm Report podcast right here on the Royals Review radio channel. So if you subscribe to our podcast, you'll also get their terrific Royals Farm Report podcast. And that'll do it for our show tonight. Thanks so much for Sean and Joel for being on the show today. And thank you, readers and listeners, for visiting our site. And we'll talk to you next time.